Hi, and welcome back once again to AlderPod. This is AlderPod number 18, which is chapter 16 of the Alder's Gate. Tarnish. This can't be serious. Libby was not taking this well. Not in the least. Much worse than Sylvan had thought. It wasn't that surprising, he didn't think. It was just a matter of time before the Order of the Asp did something tremendously idiotic, or at least allowed their reputation to tarnish enough that they'd conveniently be blamed for something tremendously idiotic. Not even Gowan of Fenley could prevent that. Sylvan watched over her shoulder as Libby continued to read the paper, and couldn't help himself but to touch her smooth, speckled skin there. She batted at him, irritated, her green-gray eyes flashing. Don't. You can't tell me that you're shocked, Sylvan countered, trying to make light, as he always did. You know as well as I how unlikely it is that they'll kill him. I'm sure they'll just strip him of his title and send him back to Moor. He'll be under the Duke's jurisdiction there. Under my father's jurisdiction, you mean? My father, the Duke of Fenley, who's already once tried to kill his own son. It was bad enough that Gowan had to leave the Rose and join up with the Asp, and I can fault him for a thousand other ills. But I don't believe a fecking word of this, she said, throwing the paper into the fire. It seemed to wait a moment before being consumed in flames, the words around her brother's ill-drawn face catching first, then moving toward the center. How is it that everyone is buying into this? It's shite, utter shite. It's just because of Ferris's agenda, and how of the other buffoons sitting on her council? It was true, there were a myriad of particularly political reasons that Sir Gowan and his little band of rabble-rousers were being raked through the coals, but in Sylvan's opinion there were also plenty of legitimate reasons. The Queen had allowed their ridiculous quasi-shamanistic practices go on for far too long. The truth was, they were hardly knights as it was, more like their own gang. The things he'd heard about their initiation was enough to make even his stomach go sour. Oh, there were a few among them that were from good stock— loyal to the queen, or at least used to be. But Din and Gowan and that madman Renman were enough trouble to make up for it. It was high time that Malus did something about it, Sylvan thought. There were more than enough oak and rose guard to go around on patrol, that was for sure. Inciting violence, murdering, said Libby, turning on Sylvan. Reasonable accusations considering their history. As he said it, he was worried for a split second that she might actually strike him. Not that he would have entirely been opposed, but still. Listen, Libby, he continued. You're working yourself up far too much. Besides, I thought you hated the oaf. You said it yourself a thousand times that you wished he was dead. She gritted her teeth. Hyperbole, Sylvan. Gowan and I have had our difficulties, but he is my brother. I think he's quite even a bigger idiot than you most of the time, but I know what he's capable of, and this... She pointed to the fire where the newspaper was now but a few layers of ash, wobbling in the heat. This is not my brother. Even the greatest exaggerations have a grain of truth, he countered, and she narrowed her eyes. He tried to smile again, but she was having none of it, amusing since just a few ticks ago they were most delightfully intertwined. That was until, of course, she'd spotted the local paper. That had put quite a damper on things, to say the least. Libel, do any of us truly know the hearts of others? You say you love him, that you know him, but you've scarcely even seen him since you were but a maid. Men change all the time. Your brother is no different. 
The truth of his own words might have stung had he allowed himself to take them to heart. The order of the asp is undisciplined, said Libby, snatching up her uniform and pulling it over her head. She was moving very quickly, all business once again. That was LaBelle, all right. And unconventional, but they've always been unusual. They've always been the black goat of the orders. Gowan knew that, but he wanted reform. He wanted change to bring about... They've pissed off a lot of people, said Sylvan, lowering his voice. Especially Sally Din. You know she's no better than a common housewife, and yet she's in charge of a whole retinue. Whatever change Gowan wanted, he never saw through. She relented, her arms falling to her sides. Well, Din's retinue isn't the only one in the Order of the Asp. What about Sir Corbin? Isn't he still running the Soderin border? I hear they're leaving him and his men out of it, and rightly so. But the Queen plans to absorb his retinue into the Order of the Oak. So it's a bit of a promotion, you might say. The name of Asp will be eradicated. It's a fecking stupid move, she said, pulling on her trousers one leg at a time. She stood in the middle of the room trying to locate something, and then launched at it, her belt slung over the back of one of the chairs. It's all just a cover-up, so no one will notice what's happened with Kathra Bav. Of course it is, but you have to admit it's clever, said Sylvan. Impeccably good timing. Not to mention it gives the townspeople something to think about while their alder class is pining the loss of their daughters and the new Herods are stirring up their own shite pile, she said. She braided her hair irritatedly, this time starting with two and then joining them, pinning them back. She was even more frustrated than usual, a rather astonishing feat considering that Sylvan couldn't recall a time in recent memory where his compatriot and sometimes companion was less than frustrated, except for their moments between the sheets, of course, but that went without saying. Regardless, Sylvan had other business to attend to. Killing Richard Darlington was easy enough from a personal perspective. He couldn't think of anyone else in the world he wanted to see more dead than that man. There was nothing about him that he could even count as a redeemable quality, from his simpering nature to his unforgivable arrogance, of course, not even to mention that he'd been terrorizing Ellen for the last three years. If thoughts could kill Richard Darlington, he'd have been dead a long time ago. But there were logistics. Sylvan had spent a few extra moments the day before trying to get a better idea of Richard's daily movements, but it was a tricky situation with the diplomats from Ardesia haunting the building in their swaying robes and all their haughty ways. They were all, on some level or another, related to Richard himself, half Ardesian by birth. He was supposed to be entertaining them, along with Ellen. Today was different, though. It was certain that Richard would be less occupied, as the Ardesians were meeting with some of the more renowned scholars holed up at the castle to do research on their connection to the royal family. Richard, a person who found books to be too boring to bother with in the case of histories, or too ridiculous for bothering with in the case of fiction, would likely be in his room this morning, according to rumor. This was rumor that, of course, Sylvan had traced through a long network of servants and butlers he had privy to. Sometimes being a bastard had its advantages. Regardless, we're to report within the turn, said Libby, turning to measure Sylvan with her even gaze. I'll have to worry about all of this later. And I'm expecting you, Sylvan de Loire, to be present during the revealing of the new ladies at court. If you don't, I'll have your throat, and I mean that. He licked his lips. Unfortunately, today is not a day that I will be able to heed your commands, dearest and fairest Libel, he said. I have other orders to attend to, of course. Her eyes might have well have glowed red for the fury in them. She tossed a loose tress from her forehead. Are you ever going to explain to me what it is you're up to? Malvin may never have asked, 
but if I'm to be captain, as I've heard rumor is a distinct possibility, I'm going to want more details. It's family business, Sylvan said. You understand. God, Sylvan, you're such a hypocrite, she sighed. If you find time during the rigors of your day and find it pleasing, it would be much appreciated if you brought your person to the presentation of the girls at court. Yes, Sir LaBelle, Sylvan said, making a mock salute. She left, shaking her head at him, and slammed the door hard enough to make the windows rattle. Ellen had not spent this much time being primped in ages. It must have been her wedding, she thought, as she watched Gaspar, the court designer, set another cluster of curls atop her head and pin it with a pearl-studded flower. She wondered vaguely where Nella was, but the Vialk was doing its job. She had not taken so much as to dull her mind beyond clarity. No, just enough to take the edge off, to take the hurt from her limbs, to make her feel as if every breath was warm, filling her body with sleepy life. The queen had picked her outfit for the reception, a dark lavender hemmed with ermine. The corset was painfully tight, but Ellen had to admit it helped her cut quite an impressive figure. And after the makeup, the hair, and the setting of her delicate crown, something she had not worn since her wedding, she did look quite the princess. The dark circles under her eyes were concealed, and her irises shone deep brown, her dark lashes enhanced with coal. She would like Sylvan to see her like this. He would see me as a princess, she thought. Perhaps he would change his mind. Perhaps he would come visit me, send me illicit love letters, do anything in his power to... The girls are ready, princess, said a voice behind her. It was Lady Irene, one of a handful of her cousins at court whom she did not detest. Irene was easily fifteen years her senior, and had happily given her husband, a middling noble of surprisingly good means, six boys, and miraculously a girl who was barely six, she was often seen at court playing games with Pog and trailing a little black dog she'd named Panky. Irene was full in the hips and heavy set, but with an open, friendly face and a high brow. She was never much for fashion, but even today she looked remarkable. You should see them, Eleonora, Irene said, leaning down to whisper in Ellen's ear. Her dark brown hair fell down her shoulder in springy ringlets, and she smelled faintly of jasmine. The queen sent them to the baths, and they've all been dressed like so many flowers. Oh, to see so many together, it made me feel a bit faint, I must admit. It's just so good to know they'll be taken care of here at Hartley, to think that some of them were living in the territories full of sand and sun. It's a miracle they're not as ugly as boys. They seem happy, asked Ellen. She had been concerned from the very beginning about the welfare of the girls. Taken from their homes to a strange land as this, she could hardly imagine— and with the travesty that happened in the territory, she wouldn't be surprised if some of the girls outright hated the queen. Irene shrugged, straightening Ellen's long, star-drop earring in the mirror, and said, Well, there's a few that were full of tears, I hear, but as soon as they saw their rooms, their dresses, and the new home, I dare say most have changed their tune. Finally, Gaspar pronounced that Ellen was prepared. 
She rose to her feet, her boots already pinching her toes, and followed Irene and three rose guard down the long corridor into the chamber behind the grand ballroom, where the girls were to be presented at court. According to the letter that had arrived early that morning, Ellen was supposed to be respiting a speech for the girls. Verbatim, of course. It had been copied into the letter itself and was now stored within the beaded purse she carried with her. It was all pageantry and a little in the way of warmth and comfort, but it, it made Ellen uncomfortable just to say it. It sounded like Malus and not like her. Ellen didn't see what Malus saw when she looked at the girls. Malus's plan was to keep them at Hartley, to culture them, while arranging marriages for them. This, she said, was her right to do as monarch due to the crisis they were facing. Women had to be matched to men of the best rank, but also the best companions. Malus wanted love. She wanted lusty matches, ripe for the childbearing, and above all, access to the best midwives in all of Arena. No, the risks were too high now. It struck Ellen that Malus was the last person in the world she ever imagined to be such a matchmaker. But that's really what the queen wanted. She would be inviting noblemen from all over the continent. Perhaps she had learned her lesson with Richard. Their pairing had been one of status and not of love. And it was childless. Ellen had not even conceived once, though that was not surprising considering she could count the times they had made together on one hand. She suspected he had other dalliances, and honestly, she couldn't care less. If she'd had the chance with Sylvan again— Thought of Sylvan made her smile and her stomach flutter— she hadn't felt like this in ages, hadn't known that dizzy, sweet feeling of wanting desperately to see that one person across the room. Would he be there in the grand ballroom? She expected he would have to be, as befitting of his station. The entire castle was abuzz with the arrival of the girls, and no expense had been spared. When Ellen had seen swaths of some of the silks that the girls used in their dresses, she had been impressed, and she'd lived her whole life around such finery. Further they walked, until at last they came to one of the large, gilded doors leading off to the chamber behind the grand ballroom, a place that Ellen had visited on many an occasion when a reveal was required for events. The queen always liked making entrances, believing that much of the strength in any reign had to do with pageantry, something Malus I certainly did not lack. Two eunuchs. These men were commonly used as butlers and doormen throughout the castle, and on an occasion bodyguards for the queen, should the need require it, nodded to Lady Irene and Ellen, then opened the doors in tandem. This part of the castle had not yet been transformed into a machine, as had much of the rest of Hartley. There was something comforting in that, Ellen thought. She liked knowing that some things still had to be done by hand. It felt more genuine somehow, made her feel significantly less automatic. But Ellen was not prepared for the sight, in spite of Irene's description. It was likely the Vialk that was doing it, filtering her emotions sometimes unpredictably, but seeing the veritable bouquet of dresses, curls, and jewelry made her eyes water and her vision swim. Were all of these really women? She knew, of course, they were, but it seemed impossible that so many could be assembled in one place. It was very like a miracle, and, and had her thinking, for one scarce moment at least, that Malus was perhaps right about the whole plan, even if it had nearly turned into a fiasco. Growing up at Hartley, Ellen had less than three girls as friends, two of whom had married very young and been sent off to live with their noble and mostly nearly daughtered husbands, while the other still was nearby. But Ellen did not think much about Labella Fenley these days, even if there was a chance she would ever see her again. She knew Sylvan had become rather close to the islander. They knew each other as children, of course. But once Labelle had been ruled baron, 
she turned into quite a different person, someone that Ellen most certainly didn't wish to associate herself with, regardless of her pedigree. Sometimes that just wasn't enough. Marvelous, isn't it? whispered Irene. One of the porters at the door announced Ellen's name very loudly, the entire title, which took more than a breath's worth of words, and the girls, young women most of them, all turned, their voices hushed immediately. All eyes were on her. Green eyes and hazel eyes, narrow eyes and wide eyes, puffy eyes and sparkling eyes. There were so many faces to look at, so many different kinds of beauty, that Ellen found herself breathless in their presence. And it was they who were supposed to be awestruck in her wake. Ah, she was not meant for this, that was certain. There were a handful of rose guards walking the perimeter of the room, and even Ellen could tell they were as dumbstruck as she, constantly moving their eyes to the swirling dresses and long, delicate arms. The princess will now address you before you are to be presented at court, said a familiar, wavery voice. It was Ferris, crumpled in a corner in a chair, his eyes red-rimmed, his face pale. Ellen felt Irene's hand on her back, and it was warm, comforting. But so many eyes! She felt her vision darken around the edges and wondered for one panic-stricken moment if this was the beginning of the fainting spell. But no, a few breaths in and out, and a large forced smile, and yes, some of them were smiling at her as well. "'Greetings to you all, fair cousins, and, and welcome to Hartley Castle,' managed Ellen, startled by the sound of her own voice in the hot room. The smell of all the girls' perfume was making her eyes water, or so she had herself believe. Most of the girls dipped into low curtsies. Those that did not were pulled down by their neighbors. Yes, some of the girls had clearly never had such treatment. They looked as unfamiliar in the dresses as common housemaids. But they could be taught in time. Others still looked to have been born into those dresses, standing straight from their curtsies with as much grace and poise as Ellen could have ever hoped for. One pair in particular took Ellen's notice. A tall girl near seventeen with jet-black ringlets that fell to her waist, and another beside her, younger, but the complete opposite, with wheat-blonde hair and startling blue eyes. Ellen knew, of course, that she was supposed to stick to the script, but she had barely managed to memorize the first line, let alone the ten paragraphs of utter nonsense Malas had written for her. So instead, she began speaking, casually, warmly, as she would have if she'd had a sister, except to a room of two hundred-odd girls. It was a new experience, to say the least. "'I know that many of you have come from very far,' she said, folding her hands before her. "'And you are likely a little frightened.' and out of sorts, and admittedly amazed by the things you have seen here at court. It is a remarkable place, I promise you, filled with wonderment and beauty. I have spent my entire life here within these walls, and I can tell you it is a most magical place to be. And granted, the only place I have ever lived, she thought. I cannot pretend that all has gone smoothly in this transaction, and for that I am gravely sorry. My heart bleeds for those of you who have lost loved ones, and have been taken from your homes. We yearn for the return of the alderman from Moot, and a final explanation of what has occurred. Had they been boys, Ellen imagined, some would have heckled. But there was only whispering. The beautiful pair she noticed before were holding hands. The younger, fair one was beginning to cry. Ellen continued, noting the relief in the faces of some of the girls. She wondered vaguely if they had expected a monster instead of a princess. Suffice it to say, I know that your first few days, weeks, and even years here may be difficult, but I promise you, 
We will do everything in our power to protect you, to support you, and to equip you with the necessary knowledge so that you will flourish. It is for your safety that the Queen has requested you reside here. As women, we are connected together, all of us. We share in the pain of our upbringings and in the fear of what the future will bring. The Queen and I believe, she paused, feeling the strangeness of this statement as she said it, we believe that we will find greater strength united in one place than apart. Too many elder daughters die in childbirth or suffer at the hands of selfish men. Here you will be taken care of, loved and cherished as the flowers that you all are. When will we get to see our parents? asked a brave voice from the back of the room. Such a simple request, so innocent. When was the last time that Ellen had seen her parents? Before they died? A few weeks? She was eighteen. They had been traveling out of the country on a diplomatic mission, of course. Was this the curse of so many who had fallen out of favor of the queen? And she had been allowed to see them, swollen and sweaty as they breathed their last. How she had longed for them in the years that followed. But now? They were like phantoms to her. Once you are settled in for the evening, and after the processing and presentation, many of your questions will be answered, I assure you, she said, looking sidelong at Ferris, who was struggling to stay awake. But for the meantime, you should prepare yourselves. The Queen is awaiting. Most of the words were her own, bolstered by a few phrases that had been in the letter by the Queen's own devising. Still, she was happy with it. It was not as overbearing as the Queen's version, which sounded more like a royal pamphlet than a welcome, and was warm in all the right places. More of the girls were smiling at her. And Ellen realized, too, that she was not nervous, not here, because the girls did not know her. They had little to no expectations of her, had no idea of her current issues or concerns, and now were looking at her with a mix of wonder and adulation. Was this what Malus lived on? This feeling of satisfaction that comes with giving people hope, was it? It seemed possible. Thank you, princess, said one voice followed by the trilling echo of more. It would be a good day. Death put Sylvan Dolor in a surprisingly good mood. It made him cheerful, made him feel useful. It was the one thing he was good at, and if all else failed, that he could depend on. Granted, in the last few months, the abilities he possessed seemed far and above what they used to be, but he welcomed them. He was not, he decided, any bit crazy. No, he was blessed. Hadn't there been saints and such who performed miracles like healing in the old days? Well, it wouldn't have been unheard of then, people doing just the opposite. Finding a way to Eleanor and Richard's apartment had been a little difficult to manage in such a short time, but with Nella, who had only wanted a tussle in the cot as payment for the right information, he found his way in. Keys were needed, passwords were attained, but before long, Sylvan found his way up a narrow staircase, headed to a small hidden door just behind the pantry. Ellen was, he was certain, being attended to for the next hour— in one of the many rooms on the first level of the castle, being primped and prepared for her grand entrance. He hoped he would make it back on time. He wanted to see Ellen presented at court. 
Sylvan doubted that she had any idea how beautiful she was, likely due to the incessant badgering by that miscreant of a husband of hers. But it lightened his footsteps to think that she would be freed of the terror that was Richard Darlington soon enough. The door to the back pantry opened very smoothly on its hinges, making a barely audible swishing noise as he pressed it forward. It was utter darkness, and he waited a moment, stilling his breath, waiting for his eyes to adjust. It was then that he realized he had walked into the middle of a conversation. The voices were low, hushed, but he could hear if he strained in that direction. His stomach sank. That would make killing Richard much more complicated. He was supposed to be alone. God damn it, but Sylvan had done everything to ensure that he was alone. It had to be one of those fecking Ardesians. Nothing to concern yourself with. That was a woman's voice. How intriguing. I'm not paying you to lollygag around. I want to know her movements. I'm sick and tired of playing this out day in and day out. I want this over with. Richard. Just the sound of his whiny, aristocratic accent made Sylvan want to reach out and strangle him. He wanted to. Every fiber of his being wanted to. But no, he could not. He had to wait. This was not going to be the right time. He would have to meet again with Malus if he was able before he was to be deployed again. "'You're making me chase phantoms,' said the woman, evenly. Her voice was enticing, but not lusty. No, Sylvan could tell there was a relationship of business, not of pleasure, and yet she held a great deal of power in her voice. And I can't catch phantoms, can I? I want proof of adultery, or I want proof of weakness, hissed Richard. Is that so much to ask? This fecking court is rife with it. The woman laughed, a throaty chuckle that made the back of Sylvan's neck tingle. Listen, you'll get what you want. It will just take time. And we have time. We have time. Not if the queen decides one of her new little flowers is a better fit for the throne than that useless wife of mine, Richard growled. I can't risk that. Not after all I've done. Sylvan clenched his teeth together so hard he could feel the enamel drag and his molars crack slightly. Soon enough he'd have Richard dead, and he could put to rest this hatred at last, which seemed to be fueled more and more by the minute. He had fantasized plenty of times how he would do it, but he was hoping he could simply evoke a dark, painful shadow to destroy him utterly. That would do the trick. "'If we can't snare the filly,' said the woman sweetly, "'we can always shoot the mare.' "'Oh, God's not now,' thought Sylvan." They were conspiring, gods damn them, conspiring to kill the queen. And Sylvan was stuck in the pantry of all places. Either he would have to retreat and gather forces, which could take close to half a turn or do so, or we'd have to storm them together. Ugh, Richard would be no problem, but if he was speaking to an assassin, even if she was a woman, Sylvan did not want to assume he had the upper hand. Of course, he could outright kill both of them, but then the queen would never get a proper trial, which would incur her wrath. He said. And if he were able to overtake them without killing them, questions would be raised. He couldn't compromise his own safety, after all. Malus had always implied that the utmost care must be taken to conceal his identity. There was only one thing to do. He ran back down the stairs fast as he could, winding his way back. Hopefully by the time he found Nella and got to Barris briefed, the woman would still be there. If not, 
Well, he'd have to deal with that later. Chances were they could find and arrest Richard easily enough. Reputations were to be upheld, after all. The girls, for the most part, did their job exceptionally well, though Ellen thought she detected a bit of fear in some of them as they took the Queen's hand. They weren't given much of a choice in the matter, after all, and Melis had a way of terrifying people. She didn't look like a real person, not with all her glamours about her. Ellen drifted in and out of attention while the festivities continued, standing to the side of the Queen, smiling as she must at the endless succession of girls. If the members of court were bored by the show, they did not indicate it. No, such a spectacle of so many girls was a sight to behold. The two girls she had noticed from before were named Megan Oldvander from a northern territory's town called Kelty, and Denelyn Gray from Vell. It was no wonder the girls had bonded. The younger, fairer one was Denelyn, and when she spoke it was a clear, strong voice, lower than Ellen would have assumed. She was the prettier of the two, yet... Her features were still so much less bold than Megan's. I would invite them to tea, she thought. I imagine they would like that. And I can see that Melis would, wouldn't mind. Making friends is always a good idea. She'd been so busy thinking about the girls that she hardly noticed Sylvan as he slid into place among the rows down the left side of the hall, along with a few other rose guards she didn't recognize. He leaned over and whispered something to the fellow next to him, and the other knight frowned and then left immediately. Sylvan's hair was slightly disheveled, but he had a stern, business-like expression on his face. That was, until she met his eye. The whole room melted away in her line of vision, and Ellen only saw Sylvan and the tiny, nearly imperceptible smile at the corner of his mouth. Yes, she had him. And this time, she would not let him go. Alderpod is produced, written, and performed by Natanya Barron. The Aldersgate Cycle is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 United States license. I really appreciate you listening in. If you'd like to learn more, you can always go to aldersgatecycle.com or aldersgatecycle.wordpress.com forward slash Alderpod. Leave me a comment. Let me know how you're enjoying the story. You can always email me too at aldersgatecycle at gmail.com. Thanks so much. <laughs>